Good morning to each and every one of you. It's good to see you here this morning, and uh, trust we can worship together on a somewhat dreary and fall, um, certainly a fall morning. <clears throat> We're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 4 this morning, so uh, you can turn there. Be reading that here in a moment after a few other introductory comments. <clears throat> Uh, first of all, I just wanted to um, state that I had the privilege of attending my uncle's funeral in South Carolina on Monday, uh, which is a real blessing to be able to be there and um, appreciate the prayers of those that were offered on my behalf as well. Uh, there were two of my, there's three remaining, uh, two uncles and an aunt that are remaining on dad's side uh, that all live in Kansas. Uh, uncle and aunt were able to be there at the funeral as well. So it was good to spend some time together with cousins and uh, uncles and aunts on Monday um, at the funeral and um, it was a real blessing to be able to be there. <clears throat> also, uh, by way of, uh, Ivan did not mention this uh, and it'll be mentioned later I'm sure, but uh, the Shrocks are planning to be on vacation next weekend, over next Sunday, and so uh, we will not be here uh, next Sunday. We'll be in West Virginia. Back to 1 Corinthians. The first four chapters here of 1 Corinthians, Paul is addressing the divisive nature um, of these Corinthian believers in this church, and he's doing so from multiple perspectives. I suspect by this point, um, by coming through chapter 4 and hitting on several different angles, that there were very few Corinthian believers that didn't have their toes stomped on at this point. That there was, there was elements of this that impacted each and every one of them. Because this was a deeply entrenched characteristic and issue, and Paul wants to be clear that they understand that divisions and factions within the church dishonor Jesus Christ and reflect negatively on themselves as well as on their level of maturity or lack thereof. So in chapter 1, uh, Paul emphasizes that the cross is the common neutral equalizer, if you will, um, among all believers. And to make such a big deal about who they're following, whether it's Paul or Paulus or Cephas or anyone else, just diminishes and takes away from the power of the cross there. And then in chapter 2, he reminds them that the Holy Spirit is equally present in all believers' lives. And, you know, it doesn't, the level of your intellectualism or worldly wisdom is useless apart from the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is 100% available to every believer, regardless of their ethnic, racial, social, or intellectual class. It's just simply, so the cross equalizes, the Holy Spirit equalizes, there just isn't these differences that they have made out to be. And then in chapter three, he just kind of summarizes and pointing out their weakness and their immaturity in many ways, and basically just indicating that immaturity will divide uh, ultimately. And as believers mature, there will actually be greater unity. And then here in chapter 4, he concludes his warnings uh, about the divisions and factions by emphasizing his own role as, as a church leader 
and asking the Corinthian believers to imitate him, pointing out that their arrogance, their pride, uh, reveal that they have obviously been watching and imitating the wrong examples in their lives. So I've entitled this morning's message, Watch and Imitate. <clears throat> As we consider whom we are going to pattern our lives after as well. As we saw in the, the earlier chapters here, some, and I would say probably most, of the Corinthian believers apparently had warped attitudes about Paul or Apollos or Cephas and perhaps, probably even the other church, any other church leaders that may have been in place there. And Paul is pointing out in this chapter that these ministers are not competitors. They are not working against each other, but they all care deeply about being faithful stewards of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not about their, what they get, their own credit or their results. And it seems like these Corinthian believers have some kind of an issue of, with pride and acting as if they had it all figured out. It was like they know what needs to be done and any other view is just not right. So they felt superior to others, especially those that didn't, sound, uh, don't, didn't share their point of view. And as I was thinking about this, doesn't this all sound pretty familiar for today? Um, you know, there's something about the reality in this Corinthian congregation that reminds me of certainly the political and cultural climate right now, of that basically that my perspective is right and all other perspectives are wrong. But even within churches, there's, there can be some level of that um, idea. And so the idea of having a civil discourse about differing perspectives is some, is just seems to be evaporating. It's, it's difficult to have a... Um, a measured discussion about differing opinions in, in many places. <clears throat> Paul is not addressing anything to do with the civic leaders or political leaders in this chapter at all, but he is addressing believers. And Paul's emphasizing that church is different. The gospel is different. The standard by which we measure is God's standard, not our own. It's not about our own ideas. It's not about our own opinions and perspectives but it's about what God wants. And so I'm going to read this from the King James Version. I'm going to read the entire chapter, and then we'll come back and walk through this in three different sections. Let's stand together as we <clears throat> read the word. 1 Corinthians 4. Let a man so account of us as of ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you, or of any of man's judgments. Yea, I judge not mine own self. For I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified. But he that judgeth me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who both will bring the, to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the heart, and then shall every man have praise of God." And these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes, that you might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, that no one 
of you should be puffed up against another, for who maketh thee to differ from another? Or what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst, not, now if thou didst receive, why dost thou glory, and if thou hast not received it, as if thou hast not received it? Now ye are full, ye, now ye are rich, ye have reigned as kings without us, and I would to God ye did reign, that we also might reign with you. For I think that God hath set forth us the apostles last, as it were appointed to death, for we were made a spectacle unto the world, and to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sakes, but ye are wise in Christ. We are weak, but ye are strong. Ye are honorable, but we are despised. Even unto this present hour we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place and, and labor working with our hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we suffer it. Being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world and are the offscouring of all things unto this day. I write these things, I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. For though ye have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet have ye not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Whereof, wherefore I beseech you, be ye followers of me, for this cause I have sent unto you Timotheus, who is my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. Now some are puffed up as though I would not come to you, but I will come to you shortly, and if the Lord will and will know, not, not the speech of them which are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What will ye? Shall I come to you with a rod, or in love, and in the spirit of meekness? You may be seated. <clears throat> so in this chapter, Paul is, like I mentioned, offering himself as an example to these Corinthian believers. And at the same time as we read this, it's obvious it's not really about himself. That's not what he's really emphasizing, but it's about characteristics and attitudes of ministers in the church as a whole and meaning that congregation, but even beyond that. And so because of that, some of you may say, well, that doesn't apply to you. Um, but I would urge you to reconsider that as you think about this, because all believers have the ability to minister and to serve others. And so in that sense, every one of us are called to be ministers of Jesus Christ. And so this does, does apply to us. And so, you know, don't discount the relevance of this chapter in your own life. And so I've broken this down into three characteristics that Paul describes here in this chapter. The first seven verses, he's the steward of the gospel. And we might say that that's the reason he does what he does. And then secondly, verses 8 to 13, he's the spectacle of the world. And there we read about the cost that comes with doing what he does and why he does it. And then verses 20, 14 to 21, we have him being as a spiritual father. And there we see that the relationship that he has 
with these people. And, and so there's three different aspects that he's bringing out throughout this, this chapter, and, and we want to uh, consider these um, together. <clears throat> there are two key words in these first uh, few verses, and I'm going to read the first couple of verses again from the, new, um, it, the English Standard Version. And he says that this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, that stewards of stewards that they may be found faithful. <clears throat> so there's two descriptions here, two primary, two key words: servants and stewards. Now the King James uses the word ministers uh, as the word servants, and that could certainly be translated either way. So first of all, we want to look at this idea of being servants of Jesus Christ, of Paul being a servant of and us being servants of Jesus Christ. The Greek word translated ministers and servants literally means under rower, under rower. Um, and everyone in Corinth would have known exactly what that meant. Um, Corinth was a major port city, and as a result, and being part of the Roman Empire, the, there were warships or war galleys that would often be docked there at the port in Corinth. And so it would have been common knowledge that the lowest deck of these warships was constructed with rows of benches, and because they had to be oared. I mean, they had to be powered by, by muscle. And, and so there were rows of benches where the slaves would sit. And the slave rowers would sit on these benches and literally power the ship together. The captain would stand on a raised platform at the, in the bow so that all the rowers could see him and hear his orders. And these rower, rowers were required to instantly obey the captain's orders. When he told them what to do, they were to follow instantly. And these rowers were called under rowers. So they were servants, they were slaves to their master, the captain, and they literally lived or died, lived and died at his bidding. And so this is the imagery that Paul is wanting to communicate to the Corinthians that he, as well as Apollos, and Cephas, and any of the other church leaders there, that is what they are to Jesus Christ. They are um, under rowers of Jesus Christ, who is the captain. And what's interesting, Jesus actually used this exact same word, the Greek word under rower, back in John 18, when um, he was uh, standing before Pontius Pilate, Jesus answered, said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants, my under rowers, would have been fighting, that I might have been delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. And so the disciples, Jesus considered his disciples to be his under rowers as well. And an under rower is certainly not a boss. He's the errand boy that carries out his captain's orders without question, and it requires instant obedience. And so Paul is telling the Corinthian church, I don't want you to look at me or any of the other ministers as these mini gods 
or people that should be elevated, those that you worship in a sense, because we're just galley slaves. And we're doing exactly what God tells us to do. It's not about what we want to do, but we are, um, we are an under rower as servant, not as a boss or a lord and master. And we live and die by our captain, uh, Jesus Christ. And whatever he tells us to do, that's what we do. <clears throat> so that's, that's the description here. That The first description that he gives is the servants of Jesus Christ. But then he follows that up and stewards of the mysteries of God. So steward is another description here that I think is uh, important for us to consider. But first of all, the mysteries of God. What does he mean by that? It's not um, some yet unknown um, aspect of the gospel of God, but rather it's the revealed or the previously unknown aspects. And I think that for purposes of understanding this clearly, the mysteries of God are simply the gospel message. It's the, uh, the gift of salvation um, of the gospel as Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross. So that's what he's referring to. And these ministers, Paul as well as others, are stewards of that gospel message. A steward is also a slave, but it's, but he, uh, and very different from the owner himself, but also very different than a galley slave, like we had talked about earlier, because a steward is a manager or a caretaker for the owner, and he carries out those responsibilities over time. It's different from this instant obedience that is required in the other, but it's something that over time these responsibilities are carried out. Nate preached several messages from, on the life of Joseph recently. And Joseph, although he was a slave to Potiphar, he was actually put in charge of his household. He was a steward of the household of Potiphar. Could he do whatever he wanted? No. Was it OK to use those resources for whatever he desired and to please himself? No. It was about doing what Potiphar wanted him to do uh, in the course of his responsibilities. So again, a steward is not a boss. A steward is a servant or a slave. It's a worker making decisions on behalf of his master. Now, a steward in the New Testament would have been very influential and a powerful slave in wealthy households. It's not like they were a nobody. Um, he made daily decisions on behalf of his master. The master would frequently be gone for weeks or months at a time, and the steward was in charge of that household if he was gone. Or he may have a second or a third home or estate, and he would delegate responsibility to a steward to manage that part of his uh, estate in his absence. And that's the other picture that Paul is painting here of his role or of a minister's role in the church, that we are stewards of the mysteries of God. We are stewards of the gospel message, caretakers of the gospel message. And as I think about that, what an incredible responsibility God, all-powerful God, left with fickle and sinful humans to entrust the gospel message with humanity. 
uh, is just pretty remarkable to think about. But Jesus Christ and the message of the gospel is our master. And what we do and say is to represent the best interests of our master, not that of our own perspective or our own desires. And then in verse 2, he follows up by stating that the stewards must be found faithful. You know, a, a faithful steward is not a luxury the master enjoys, but it's a requirement. Um, an unfaithful steward would not remain a steward long. Uh, he would simply be removed. And so that is, a steward requires faithfulness. Uh, there's just no two ways about it. And so Paul, this is how Paul describes himself along with other ministers, teachers, preachers, as both servant, the more lowly slave, and steward, a more dignified slave, both of which require obedience and subordination to the captain or master. He then continues here by talking about God being the judge. And um, there's a lot that we could speculate here, but um, Paul is clearly stating that God is the ultimate judge of his actions. It's not them or others, but, it, but ultimately God is. But he's doing so with the posture of being a servant and steward. We don't know, but it made me wonder as I was studying this, the Corinthian believers must have been judging, casting judgment at Paul or Apollos or Cephas or others based on what they believed. Um, it doesn't explicitly say that, but it's, it is implied here. And then Paul goes on to say that even though he himself is not aware of any wrongdoing, that fact alone or that belief alone does not actually acquit him. That doesn't make him innocent. Even though I believe there's, I've not done anything wrong, that doesn't make me innocent because ultimately it is God who judges me. And so it's not even based on what I believe about myself, but it's ultimately about what God believes me. And so Paul is, and then above that, Paul is not going to be swayed in the court of public opinion. He's not going to uh, say what he believes people around him want to hear to get, gain popularity and so forth, but he is going to say what he believes God wants him to say. Because the reality is that God alone knows our true motives and, uh, and our hearts, and he is the final judge, and that's what will ultimately matter. He mentions Apollos here as well, and I think we could include Cephas, but, he, you know, they... Paul is basically saying here that he they approached the ministry the same way that Paul did. And um, they're servants, they're stewards, and they're, they're looking to God as to being their ultimate judge. And these Corinthian believers have been the ultimate beneficiary of all their teaching, of their combined teaching. And none of them, and none of their teaching is about elevating one above the other or one against the other. It's all about being one in Christ is what they were all, all attempting to teach. Then he concludes that part about basically that, that everything that they've received has been a gift from others. It's not something that they have deserved or earned on their own. 
And so why is it that they're so distorting and bragging about things as if it was their own ideas and, you know, if it, as if it was their own uh, insights, if you will, and so forth, and not a gift from someone else? You know, some of them probably were on Paul's side, others were not, and he did not try to appease those by tweaking the message for them. Rather, he emphasized that we're all on the same team working for Jesus Christ, who is ultimately the captain. So, this first, these first seven verses, Paul was, and we are, servants of Jesus Christ, an under rower, a lowly slave, requiring instant obedience, stewards of the gospel, being a caretaker, or a more dignified slave, but with longer-term responsibilities, subject to God's judgment. Paul declared this with full confidence, but without arrogance, that God is the judge. He was a steward of the gospel. Moving on to the next verses, we see how Paul has become a spectacle to the world. And he shifts his tone rather radically at this point. And I read this several times trying to just get an understanding of what is he really saying here. But he moves from a rather serious tone to one of sarcasm and satire, just like that. Clearly, what he states in these next couple of verses about the Corinthians is not what he believes or thinks. Rather, to make a point, he's basically saying the opposite of what he's wanting to communicate, just to kind of exaggerate and make a point. And so he's making a strong point about their, um, their arrogance, their pride, their self-sufficiency here, and contrasting that with the realities of uh, Paul and, and Apollos and Cephas and, you know, and, and other ministers of the word. So I'm just going to read uh, this first couple of verses here. Already you have all that you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign that we might share the rule with you. Um, so I mean, there in the ESV, each of these sentences end in an exclamation point. He's really emphasizing these, these statements. And that's not what he meant. The Corinthian church thought they had it all together. They acted as if they had everything one could want, as if they were rich, as if they were kings, and they had this smug, self-satisfied attitude. It reminded me, reminds me a lot of the church in Laodicea that we read about in Revelation 3, verses 15 to 17. The angel says this, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I have need, and I need nothing. And realizing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Paul doesn't come right out and say that in this way here, but I think that he's making that exact same point here, is that you, you act as if, you have these characteristics, but realizing that you don't. And, um, and so he, he contrasts that. 
And then he goes on to then contrast that attitude that they have with the reality that he deals with every single day as a minister. And he starts out by saying that a minister is to become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. Now, I don't know what goes through your mind when you think about spectacle, um, but as it's used here, it does not mean um, the center of attention or um, just an oddity. That might be the way that we would tend to use it today. But rather, the Greek word is theatron, or something like that, from which we would derive the word theater. So we, he, we have, he's become a theater to the world. And a spectacle in that day was literally the criminal being led to the arena to either fight gladiators or wild animals. It was a death sentence. So when he says, I become a spectacle to the world, he's meaning that he's been given a death sentence. And I believe that that's why he probably precedes this phrase with, like men sentenced to death, uh, because that's literally what it was. Uh, he was being sentenced to death. And so Paul considered his calling as a minister of the gospel literally as a death sentence, not one that you're proud of or that is a status symbol, but it is it is. It is a death sentence, and the Corinthians were gloating about themselves where Paul was literally putting his life on the line just in ministering the gospel to them. The message of the gospel is never going to be popular in the world. You know, being a minister, being a pastor, was not popular in Paul's day, and a faithful servant and steward today is not popular. You know, one can gain popularity by compromising truth, but when you compromise truth, then it's no longer the gospel. And so this has never been a popular message. Yet nobody likes to be unpopular, and being rejected and ridiculed is, you know, one of the great tests of the Christian life. And so just a challenge for you here, are you willing to bear reproach for the name of Christ. And the reality also is that we may be put to a test sooner than what we would like to think. You know, and will we be able to, will we be willing to stand for God or capitulate to the pressure of culture when that time comes? And, you know, the Corinthians avoided the suffering and reproach that Paul describes here by accommodating themselves to the world, by adapting to it. They put up with anything in the church. They refused to judge any wrong behavior. And by compromising like that, they, were, they avoided the reproach and the suffering, but they certainly compromised the gospel of Jesus Christ in, in the process. So Paul... Uh, describes, has a whole list of things of what it's like to be a minister. Uh, he says, we're fools for Christ. And here again, these first several, he contrasts them. They're claiming to be strong or they're claiming to be wise, but we're fools for Christ. They're strong. The Corinthians are strong. We're weak. Um, they have good reputation or whatever, but we 
are held in dis uh, disrepute or dishonor. So he's describing these contrasts between Paul and the Corinthian believers, but then he goes on. They're hungry and thirsty, poorly dressed, beaten, homeless, working hard, and then the response. When they're reviled, they bless. When they're persecuted, they endure. When they're slandered, they entreat. And sums it up here. It says, we are the scum or the refuge, refuse or the sewage of the world. That's how the world views um, Christianity and, and certainly servants of Jesus Christ. And that is, that is what Paul describes. Faithful Christianity is not popular, and I believe it will continue to become more marginal in our society. And so are we ready, are we willing to make that sacrifice, to be ridiculed, to suffer, and to even die for Jesus Christ when we face this kind of thing? Or do, does our desire for uh, popularity or being included cause us to compromise? <clears throat> so Paul was a steward of the gospel and the spectacle of the world, and then the last seven verses here, he's also a spiritual father. I'm going to just read these last eight verses uh, with you from the ESV. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist of talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with a love or with love in a spirit of gentleness? <clears throat> I find it interesting how he starts this section out, this first verse 14. Middle, he, he's again shifting. So he had been quite serious and then he used sarcasm to make a point and now he's coming back and really wrapping up this, these four chapters on the... Uh, the seriousness of divisions and so forth. <clears throat> but he made the first thing he says, I don't write these things to make you ashamed. Middle Eastern cultures are very strong honor cultures. And most of us don't really grasp what that really means. Uh, and I don't even fully. But in those cultures, one's honor is more important than most anything else. You, you do to great lengths. Um, even today, you occasionally will hear about honor killings, where literally a family member will kill another family member for the honor of their family. And it, it is misguided, certainly in, the, in that way, but that's how strongly this honor culture is ingrained in, in people. And so that would have been the case with these Corinthian believers. This honor culture was very dominant. 
And being shamed by someone is about the worst thing that can happen to a person. And so Paul is making very clear here and being very um, upfront here that he wants to admonish these Corinthian believers, but he doesn't want to shame them. And so he's wanting to respect them, but not dishonor them. And so he is very explicit about that intention and his desire because he loves them and he is treating them and he's treating them as his own children because he says, you know, not to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. These Corinthian believers, we don't know exactly. There would have been a period of maybe five years since Paul started this church. And obviously, Apollos and Cephas were through there, but they also had other leaders as well. And he says, for though you've had countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. King James says 10,000. And uh, the Greek word literally means 10,000 or countless or numberless. Um, and, and so... I don't think that they literally had 10,000 pastors coming through their church in that five-year period, but there were a lot of them. And, and so they had, they had a lot of guides in Christ, but they weren't, they weren't the kind like um, he was, and he had, didn't have the relationship with them the way that he did, but where he had the father-child uh, relationship. <clears throat> There, was, there weren't others that those others didn't really truly care for them the way that Paul did uh, when he was there with them. Paul was the one that introduced them to the gospel message and as such became their spiritual father in a lot of ways. He invested 18 months with them at that time, teaching them, discipling them, leading them, and showing them how to, to, to live their lives. Then Paul makes that bold statement that most of us probably would be a bit reluctant to make, where he says, I beg you, I urge you, imitate me. And, you know, Paul is not stating this in pride. He's not being boastful, but he is urging them to act differently than what they are and offering himself as a pattern on how he, they should conduct themselves. And it's just a challenge to me is, you know, uh, you know, what would this congregation be like if every person in this room now or in the congregation imitated me or you? Um, and are you willing to be the kind of example to others to live that kind of an example to others to live their lives? where they can pattern their lives after you. What would you do differently if you knew with confidence that 20 to 50 others were watching you very closely and imitating your conduct, your actions, your reactions, your attitudes? How would, that, how would you live your life differently if you knew that was happening? Paul is very confident in this. He says, you know, you need a, you're not living the way that you need to be. 
I'm like your father. I have invested deeply. I love you dearly. Please conduct yourself the way that I am. Please act the way that I do. And, and with confidence felt like that would be the best thing, and I believe that it was. <clears throat> There's four things here in these concluding verses, and a couple of these I've already kind of touched on, but I just want to, that are concrete principles that address this issue of arrogance and divisions that are so prevalent in, uh, in this church. The first is that of always acting in love. You know, Paul did that when he did not want to shame them, but he was coming to them in love. Paul is clear that he loves them and cares for them so much that he wants to help them and, and literally calls them to action. And then we're also to be a good example, just what we were talking about. He tells them to imitate him, but then follows up also by explaining that Timothy that someone else he has mentored is going to be coming, and he's going to remind them exactly what Paul has been telling them as well as every other church that he's been to as well. His message is consistent wherever he goes. His life is consistent wherever he goes. And so Timothy is going to be bringing this as well um, through his teaching and disciplining. And then thirdly is to confront realistically. Um, you know, the Corinthians had some very false and far-out beliefs. Um, but these false beliefs, these illusions, these denials have to be cleared away in order to understand really what the sin issue is that we're dealing with. And, um, and some of these from the last part of this in verse uh, 18, some of you are arrogant as if I'm not coming to you. And some of these were essentially regarding, disregarding what Paul was Paul was planning to come, and he was just, they were just ignoring what he had to say, and we're going to keep doing. Their arrogance was completely undaunted by Paul. But Paul is saying here in these concluding verses that talk is cheap. You know, true change is going to require power, some kind of supernatural power. And uh, the talking isn't going to get you anywhere, but it's the actions, it's the conduct and he wanted the Corinthians to understand that what people are actually doing and how they're conducting their lives demonstrates how God's power is or is not at work in their lives. But then at the end, which is, this is a good reminder for me as well, it, the choice is up to them ultimately. It's their choice. Um, and he gives them a choice. He says, shall I come with a rod or with love? Um, Basically, he was going to come, but they have a choice how they respond to or what they do uh, in response to that. And the reality is everyone makes choices, and ministers, servants, stewards must then adapt based on the choices people make. We can't control choices. Um, people make those independent. So in conclusion here, whom we watch and imitate reveals much about ourselves. Is it someone, and this is just a challenge that, you know, we can, we can watch and imitate a lot of people, but is it someone we personally know or is it some virtual personality 
that we know about. Um, and I think that there, there's a big difference there. You know, like, do you personally know the person whom you are watching and imitating in your life? Is it someone that shares the characteristics that Paul outlines here in this chapter? Someone that is a steward of the gospel, a spectacle to the world, and a spiritual father? That's the kind of people that we should be looking for and looking to, to imitate, to watch and imitate. But then ultimately the question comes right back around to ourselves as well. Am I the kind of person that I can urge others to watch and imitate? If not, what needs to change or what needs to be done to make that a reality? So my challenge for each of us here this morning is that let's be with Paul, a faithful steward of the gospel, a spectacle to the world, and a spiritual father to those that we um, come in contact with around us. Let's stand together for closing prayer. <clears throat> father, thank you for the privilege of gathering, worshiping, and hearing from your word this morning. Father, I pray that each person here would cultivate and um, refine these characteristics that Paul describes here in this chapter. Being a steward of the gospel, a spectacle to the world, meaning that not necessarily popular and probably involves suffering, but willing to do that. And then spiritual father, spiritual adult to those around us that we can influence and, um, and make an impression on a spiritual and eternal um, difference in their lives. Just ask that as we go from here, you would both help us pursue and imitate those kinds of people, but then at the same time cultivate those kinds of characteristics in our own lives that others can imitate in our own lives as well. Be with us as we go throughout this week. May we honor you in all that we do. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.